0: This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on infant toddler development. And again, we're talking about birth to three here. And a lot of what we're talking about is what early intervention specialists can do because as a licensed clinician you can actually get certified as an early intervention specialist. Um, Just contact your um, local health department and figure out who runs that program in in your county. And that can be an extra source of income if you really like working with this group. But we can also help parents who come to us, the parents themselves are our clients, but they have children birth to three who may be experiencing some developmental delays or whatever. So it's important for us to be aware of the services that are out there and ways that we can help them. So I do want to remind you that this presentation is designed for counselors as well as early intervention specialists who may or may not be licensed and family team members because part of early intervention is bringing the team on board, bringing the family together and making them an active participant in the team. So some information may be review. We're going to try to make it as interesting and exciting as possible. So we're going to talk about teams and describe the basic tenets of systems theory as applied to early intervention teams. We'll discuss the teaming process and the importance of enablement, which, you know, is different than you may think. We'll discuss five components of the early intervention model and how eco maps can be used as relationship building tools. And then in the curriculum that I was looking at, they had this really cool thing called the goose story we're going to look at that is a wonderful metaphor for teams. We'll talk about some barriers to communication and developing a good team and identify qualities of effective teams and families. So a lot of what we're talking about is what is this early intervention process, what does it look like, who's on the team, and how can we make the best group um, process. So five components for early intervention one everybody's got to understand family ecology and we use an eco map to do that which we're going to talk about it's a really cool little thing if you haven't ever done one then you'd conduct a functional interview uh, or a functional intervention planning using a routines-based interview. So we want to provide interventions that are going to help the child do things like dress himself, do things like feed himself, something that's functional, not just something that, it would be cool to see if the child could stand on one leg and balance. That's not real functional. What are we hoping to do with Junior? And we do this through routines because we don't want to put extra stuff on the parents. We look at where can we incorporate some of this into the routines. So for example, with my son, um, he had to work on balance when, when he was little. So we had a big balance ball. And when we would play, I would sit him on the balance ball and we'd just kind of play games there. That became part of our play routine. It wasn't a new thing. You know, I did play with him before, but that just became incorporated as part of our play routine. So we want to make sure that parents can identify routines and we can help them identify where to insert interventions, if you will. Another part is integrated services with a primary service provider. So there's going to be one main cook that coordinates everything for the family. Um, and then But the integrated services are available. So you have OT, PT, physical stuff, um, audiology if needed. Whatever services are needed, they're there. But there is going to be one person coordinating that. Effective support-based home visits. We want to meet the parents and the family in the home because this is where they're going to be doing the interventions. And collaborative consultation to child care. We also want to identify where is this child spending the brunt of their time? You know, if they're with mom and dad all day long, well, that's great. But if they're spending six or eight hours or more in child care, then we want to make sure that the early intervention specialists go in and make and enhance the environment in that routine as well. Principles of early intervention are that all intervention with the child occurs between specialist visits. The specialist is there and is going to say, okay, these are the things that you can do, but the child's really not going to make progress in that 45 minutes. It's going to be between visits as the child practices and the family works together. Therapy and instruction are not golf lessons. Children, especially young ones, can't transfer skills well from one learning setting, like the clinic, um, to everyday life where they need the skills. So if you can teach Johnny to do something at the clinic, that's great. But when he gets home or when he's at school, it may not transfer there. So we need to make sure that wherever Johnny is doing this routine that he needs assistance with, we need to make sure that he learns in that environment. Caregivers need to own the goals and are not likely to address target behaviors in which they have little investment. So that's one of the reasons we want to bring the family on the team. They're not just a part of the process. They are part of the team because if they're not owning those goals, there is going to be like, okay, whatever. You know, think about at work. You know, where I used to work, we had dashboard goals and we had lots of dashboard goals and they were great. And They were wonderful. It was something to work towards But sometimes I just wasn't invested in all the dashboard goals You know, I was invested in providing high-quality client care whether the person was out of jail six months after they got out of my program was Less of my concern if we provided good quality care while they were there Then that would follow and there were other Goals that I didn't own as much so I was less dedicated to and You know, it's human nature. I'll I'll admit that I was less dedicated to some of our dashboard goals. But parents are the same way. They're going to see the things that are most germane to them. If they want Johnny to quit biting or hitting or they want Johnny to sleep for at least six hours a night, those are things the parent is invested in. And that's where they're going to be more likely to really stick with the treatment plan and be involved. Caregivers influence the child. And professionals influence the family so let, let's think about that you know that was a really profound statement because when we go in and we work with the family we're generally working with the adults and the adults are part of the team and all that and we can influence them but 45 minutes with a child the child's like whatever you know especially really young children but the caregivers are there all day long so we can have more influence with the caregivers But the caregivers and the rest of the family are the ones that are going to ultimately implement these strategies and influence the child We want to remember that children learn throughout the day So from the minute they get up to the time they go to bed. They are little sponges So there's always learning opportunities and when parents provide interventions in daily routines They're more likely to feel empowered So if we help them, you know, make this part of their routine and they start doing it and they're like, hey, this works really well, I'm doing a better job or it's more successful and they attribute a lot of the success to themselves, which is good. We want that. I don't want to take credit for what mom's doing day in and day out. And we want to remember that it's maximal intervention the child needs, not maximal services. So... Yes, you could send them to 16 different specialists. You could have somebody in the home 30 or 40 hours a week. But is that going to get the child maximal intervention? What is it that that child needs? That child may only need, or that family, may only need you to come in once a week and say, okay, these are the things that I see Junior is stuck on. You know, what do you think we can do to work it out? Brainstorm, create a treatment plan. let them loose so it's important to make sure that uh, we're focusing on what is what does the child need to make maximal improvement and it may not be a whole bunch of services it may be one service or it may be a little bit of time sometimes children just need a little bit of time to develop all the way and um, yes this is also called um, natural environment teaching We want to really make sure what we're doing is in that environment. Because the other thing you notice when you work in the environment is all the distractions. You know, if you've got Johnny and he's having a hard time doing something and you're working with him in the clinic and he can do it just fine, but then at school he can't seem to do it, you might start scratching your head. So then you need to back up and go to school and look and say, what else, what's different at the school? What else is going on, um, to use a behavioral term? What are some of the discriminative stimuli that might be triggering alternate behaviors? Okay, so our eco map, and this is a really cool thing. You put the child and the parents or the caregivers in the middle, and that's wonderful. And then if you think about Brofenbrenner and the meso system and all that, you want to think about who do the ch- child and the parent interact with on a regular basis so then you start putting those people out here and it can be work you know sarah interacts with work colleagues and those are people she interacts with and they're going to impact her mood they can help her at work or they can make it harder um and they can may provide support and maybe cover for her if she's got to take michelle to the pediatrician or they may not so you know we just want to list all of these people the family interacts with on a regular basis and then the thickness of the line identifies how much support the family perceives that they can get from those people so the dotted line is very little support um, and the solid line is you know somebody that's there if you need them the really Strong lines, those are the people you can call it to in the morning, or those are the people you can rely on to take Michelle to the pediatrician if you can't get there. Um, So there are a lot of, you can see connections here, and you can start helping the family see, okay, looking at this map, when there's a problem, who can you call on? You know, if you need to go back to work, you know, who can you rely on to help you out with some of these things? So there are five stages of functional intervention planning. Family and staff prepare for the interview. So generally, you know, everybody on the team is gonna prepare for the interview and you're gonna meet at one location. And my experience has been for the initial interview, unfortunately, it's often not at the family's house. But if you can, that's great. And, but the family is asked to prepare, you know, what concerns do you have? What do you want to know? All those sorts of things. Then the routines-based interview itself is conducted. And a lot of times in these assessments, multiple providers are there so you may have somebody from ot and pt and audiology and wherever else and they're all in and it's this group interview so to, so to speak where they all assess the child and they're looking for different things then the family selects the outcomes not the provider the family says okay you know out of all these things the most pertinent things that i want to have happen are x y and z sometimes families are like I don't know what the next step is so early intervention providers can say okay here is what I'm seeing these are the child's strengths these are the areas where the child may need a little bit of assistance so which ones of those do you think are most important to work on first and sometimes that helps the family narrow it down and go okay you know I really want to see this this and this cool okay so the outcomes are selected and then The objectives are written by the professionals who know what kind of interventions that we can use because a lot of times the parents are going I have no idea how to teach this or how to work with this particular issue. So the professionals can and can write objectives but they get family input. We want to say does this seem like it'll work for you and sometimes we write the objectives and the family tries it and it doesn't work and we got to go back to the drawing board and that's okay. But all that's developed in concert with the family, and then it's reviewed in subsequent months, they say. Generally, once a month, you review the treatment plan. So six questions for the routine-based interview. Um, What does everyone else do during the day when the child's not there? What do they do for work um, during the evening, what does everybody else do? Do they come home and sit on the TV? sit on the couch and watch TV? Are they all in their separate rooms what 's going on? Um, for home routines, we want to ask about what every family member does, and for classroom routines, we want to know what the other children do, and you know sometimes the whole class does certain things, other times they break up into groups. So we want to know what the routines what is the rhythm of that particular environment, the family. The classroom, etc, and then during these periods, you know when you come home, what does the child do? you know they 're one of those people that we want to figure out what what the child does. what is his or her engagement like, and how much does the child participate in routines so if the baby, if it 's an infant and you just plop the baby down and put him in front of Elmo or something, and everybody else does their own thing that 's one thing um, if the baby is you know strapped to mom that's something else um, you know when I first went back to work um, my son would come with me when I would teach and I would wear my baby Bjorn and I'd once he got older he'd be facing out because he amused my students and they stayed awake a lot longer but he was very involved and he would smile and you know interact with the students throughout the entire class but you know um, we want to find out how, how engaged is the child in this. How much does the child seem to like it? What is his or her independence like? Now that's going to be different, obviously. That's going to be a different answer and question for a two- or a three-year-old versus a three-month-old. Um, so how much can the child do by themselves? If you're working with a two-year-old, can they you know, pull off their own socks? Can, what is it that they can do in terms of dressing? And feeding and those sorts of things what are his or her social relationships like good bad indifferent and obviously they don't have BFFs that they're texting at this age but when they're at school or at daycare or at church or wherever it is that they interact with other kids do those relationships seem strong or does the child pretty much play by him, him or herself the whole time and is withdrawn does the child communicate and get along with others some children are are social butterflies other children are again more withdrawn and some children either are withdrawn or social butterflies but when they get pushed too far they may become aggressive you know those are just some options so we want to know you know what does the relationships look like and how satisfied is the caregiver with the routine so you know you may have a child um, my son, for example, when he was very, very little, uh, he had gastric reflux really bad. And I could tell you what we did, and I could tell you what he didn't do, and that was sleep ever um, for like two months after he came home from the hospital. I was not very satisfied with that routine. Not only did I know he needed his sleep, but I did too. Um, so that was one of the things that we worked on and, um, with the pediatrician and the, and the therapist. So, we want to see what is it that the parents need in addition to in order to make them as present as possible to be with the child during the implementation, ah, implementation stage. we want to use a child 's strengths to enhance learning in the natural environment. If Johnny is naturally curious, that can be really frustrating for a parent if johnny 's always getting into trouble, um, and once they start being mobile, it can be you know, a little bit nerve wracking because every time you turn around, Johnny's climbing on the dog or pulling the cat's tail or, you know, just being curious or putting something in his mouth, always with something in the mouth. So that can be exhausting for some parents, but the strength is Johnny's curious. So how can we use that to help him develop, you know, independent skills or whatever it is that you're trying to develop? Remember that the relationship with the family is the context for the intervention. So if the family thinks we're coming in like bulldozers or we're condescending or whatever, probably not going to be a great relationship. Um, We want to continually elicit from them. And culturally, some families may not speak up. Um, So we may need to pull a little bit more instead of asking, "Does, does that work for you? in many cultures, the person will say, yes, even if it doesn't work for them, you are a figure of authority, so they're not going to contradict you. So it's important to ask them, what do you think would work best in this situation? And maybe give them two or three options um, in order to get their participation and feedback. And it can be a cultural thing ethnicity-wise. It can also be a cultural thing like age-wise. I know with my grandmother, whenever her doctor told her to do something, She just said, okay, and didn't question it at all, even when it wasn't necessarily the best choice. So it's important to make sure that we're cognizant of the cultural values that are underscoring this relationship. We wanna offer appropriate anticipatory guidance with respect to social, emotional, and behavioral issues. We know when the terrible twos are coming up, so to speak, and you know, I thought the twos were great. It was the threes I had a problem with. Um, But we wanna let parents know, Junior's going to start asking a lot of questions now, and that's because he's curious, and everything seems new, and he's trying to figure out how the world is logical, and if parents understand why Junior is doing this, it's not to be annoying. It's because it's, it's exciting, just like when they um, when they discover they can make you pick up their bottle if they throw it off the high chair, and they go, uh-oh, you know, that is a never ending source of pleasure for a lot of children and it can get frustrating to parents if they don't understand so we can let them know that developmentally you know junior may be getting ready to go through this stage so you know just prepare for it you know the stage where they start taking off their own diaper you know when it's soiled don't put another one on but they take off their diaper and go running butt naked through the house um (laughs) It can be embarrassing if you've got company, but if you're prepared for it, you know, you can handle it. And we also want to make sure that we're working cooperatively across disciplines. So being partners with the family, but also with the other caregivers, because it can be challenging sometimes when, you know, OT and PT and pediatrics have different implementation procedures, if you will. Um, So we want to figure out how can we all work together and not overwhelm. The caregivers because if you have five different caregivers or five different people on the team that can be five appointments a week for the caregiver which can get really overwhelming so we may need to see how we can combine some of these things in order to make it easier on the family Uh, one of the things you know I talked earlier about childcare one of the things that early intervention specialists often do is they go visit the child while the child is in childcare so the parent doesn't have to take time off work, which can make it a lot easier. And OT and PT can also do that. I've seen a lot of pediatric um, physical therapists also going to um, child care centers in order to implement the treatment plan. So there's a lot that can be done to make it easier on the family and still make sure that everybody is getting their, their goals met. So questions for visits. And you know we want to re- remind parents of the 4 Es when they're working with their child because children can get frustrated especially if they've got developmental delays um but the 4 Es for us as well as for them are to ears listen what does the child or what does the family or what does anybody anybody on the team have to say and i guess i'll just say team from here on out because the child and the family are all part of the team so listen E is for elicit. So we want to ask, you know, what is challenging about this particular situation or what do you think needs to be different? A three-month-old is not going to be able to answer, but the parent of the three-month-old will have kind of a good idea. And when the parent looks at the child and interacts with the child, they're eliciting communication. It's nonverbal, but it's communication. So they know... You know, if I do this, then Junior calms down. Well, score. Okay, so Junior is telling you, that's what I wanted. So we want to ears, elicit, empathize. It can be really frustrating. And, I mean, just take a minute to get down there and pretend that you're this helpless little little being um, and the world is kind of a scary place. It can be frustrating. We also want to empathize with the parents who are juggling and dealing with their own stuff Regarding the developmental delays or the disability or whatever and encourage We want parents to encourage children and we want to encourage the parents because remember we influence the caregivers and the caregivers Influence the child so we want to keep this positive mojo ball kind of rolling questions for Generally for the caregivers, how have things been going? you have anything new you want to ask me about? How have things been going with each individual service plan outcome in priority order? So, you know, which objective is your highest priority and how have things been going with that? Which objective is your next highest priority and how have things been going with that? Is there a time of day that's not going well for you? And this is one of those things that Even when I work with adults, I don't necessarily always think about the fact that there's a time of day. But for children, you know, certain times of day can be really exhausting because they don't even stay up all day. Um, So we want to ask them, is there a certain time of day? And maybe it's around, you know, nap time, lunch time. Maybe it's right after school. There could be something going on. You know, a lot of children kind of just decompress right after they get home from from elementary school because they've had to be good all day and they've had to sit in their seat and be still a lot of the day. Now, for younger children that we're talking about here, a lot of times when we look at bad times during the day or more challenging times during the day, it often has to do with that child's cycles and when they start getting sleepy and their rhythms or the environment. Because some children, having a lot of people around is overwhelming and they get overstimulated. So we want to ask about the time of day and the location. Um, Have you had any appointments in the last week? Are there any coming up? And do you have enough or too much to do with your child? And this is a great thing to ask every single time. Are we giving you too much? Do we need to back off a little bit because it's better to do and remember we want maximal interventions not maximal services we want junior to progress and and succeed in a couple of goals rather than fail at 14 goals for each question we can use the following follow-up prompts do you need any information to help should we try to solve this or would you like me to show you and use those judiciously when when we're working with parents because some parents aren't going to ask for help because they feel like they should know how to do this other parents are going to constantly be going what do you think i should do Um, but we want to provide information and you know it's really with the internet it's really awesome now because a lot of times you can write down websites where they can go if you know that there's a particular website that talks about an issue and say, you know, I have, there's this great website that I go to. Um, if you're interested in, you know, getting a different perspective or something, you can go there whenever you have time. So it feels less like you're saying, you don't know what you're doing, so why don't you go read up on it a little bit. But you can suggest that there are other really cool resources out there. Now, empowering caregivers, they call it enablement in here, and you know, coming from addictions, I heard the word enablement, and I was just like, ah! But enablement is a good thing in early intervention. The goal of enablement is to increase caregiver self-sufficiency. We're enabling them to be the best possible caregivers to this unique little individual. So we use a lot of we terms, and ask for parents' expert opinion. So what should we focus on next week? what are we going to do? How should we approach this? Um, Not how are you going to approach it or how am I going to approach it? And we do want to amplify any resources. And this is kind of one of those brief intervention techniques that we use. We want to amplify the strengths. So notice the resources. If you come in and Johnny is just all over the place and really excited and in a good mood that's a strength okay you know he may feel a little chaotic um but we want to notice that that's a strength it's a positive change in his mood he's being more sociable or whatever um and initiate conversation about that event you know he seems like he's in a much better mood uh this week i'm wondering what you what has been going on what you did you know that sort of thing Okay, so helping parents and teams with good communication. So good communication involves approaching interactions positively and with an open mind. And I say this for teams as well as parents because we can fall into that rut of looking at the deficits. We're looking for the problem so we can solve the problem. No, we're looking at the solution. What's the solution and where can we go from here? So we want to approach interactions positively, and use the family's strengths and goals, listening attentively to fellow team members, and it can be, I've seen it on teams, even, you know, within my own agency where, you know, certain staff members would tune out other staff members. It's really important to make sure everybody's integrated and on board so we all understand where we're going. And this is especially true when the family is talking. Because if the family is asserting a need and we're not attending to it, they're going to feel like they're not being heard because they're probably not, which means they're probably going to start losing motivation and withdrawing from the team. They feel unsupported. So we want to make sure we are listening attentively, even if, you know, it feels like the parents got something else every single week. That's okay. Let's hear it and let's work with it. If they've got something else every single week, you know what? That shows that they're attentive. That shows that they're, you know, really concerned. Um, And try to look at any of these things in terms of, of strengths. How can we use this to our advantage? We want to maintain an awareness of our internal state and body language. And, you know, we want to encourage parents to do this with their children as well. Approach interactions with Johnny positively when he's, you know, literally bouncing off the walls, running from one side of the room to the other. Um, how do you approach that instead of going, stop it? Um, how, how can you approach that positively? How can you listen attentively to what Johnny has to say? And if Johnny's 18 months old, he may not be able to articulate much. So we need to help the parent if they need help, but encourage them to um, interpret the nonverbals, because that's still, you know, oodles of communication. Encourage them as well as us to maintain awareness of our own internal body state and body language. Children are extremely perceptive when we're bored or frustrated or angry, even if it's not at them, they pick up on it and they personalize it. So, we need to be aware of how, how we feel and what we are projecting. We need to accurately interpret the nonverbal communications of others, use proper tone of voice, choose the right words, and deliver our message at the appropriate time. When Johnny is, you know, kind of losing his stuffing, is not the time to sit down and try to have a discussion with him. When he's in the middle of a full-out tantrum, it's not the time to rationalize with him. He needs to get that adrenaline out of his head and so he can focus. So the appropriate time is one of those things we work on with parents in um, delivering some of these messages. Barriers to effective communication. And this is more um, parent to child than it is within the team. But the child is part of the team. We want the child to feel like they're being lifted up. So moralizing. Telling the child what they should or ought to do. Offering advice prematurely. If... Tommy is struggling to write his ABCs. Um, okay, you know, let's see if we can help him out. If he's struggling to learn his ABCs, you know, what is it that he needs to do before we start intervening and doing it for him? Yeah, and sometimes as parents, you know, one ABCs and one two threes are things that we've been doing for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. So it seems like second nature, and we want to jump in there and help them. Sometimes they need to struggle through it a little bit and and work at it because they'll get it we don't want to judge criticize or blame we want to own our stuff so when parents are working with children we don't want them to get frustrated and and tell them you know you're not even trying or you are better than this or worse yet your dad taught you this didn't he um and and i've heard all three of those from parents at, at different points in time and you know blaming the other, the other partner or somebody else in the family or whatever doesn't help Johnny. You know, it doesn't matter where the behavior come, came from, really. We need to figure out how to fix it. We don't want to ridicule or tease the child. You know, sometimes they're going to, you know, my son when he was little couldn't catch a ball to save his life. You know, his gross motor skills just weren't there for that kind of thing. Um, and it was frustrating to his dad who wanted to play ball with him. But we didn't ridicule and tease him because he couldn't do it. It was just like, okay, that's one of those things he's not doing right now. And it wasn't a functional issue for him. So we kind of moved on. Dominating. Avoid talking too much, interrupting, asking rapid fire questions, or giving expert advice. So we want the family to really participate in what's going on. If Junior's having a problem, um, we want to ask junior what's going on how he thinks he could solve it if he's too little to talk you know we might help him at that point obviously you want you dominate a little bit more when the child is younger Um, but as they get older like when they're picking out their clothes um you know sometimes i really wanted to dominate (laughs) because i really hated the, the combination but it was fine you know it was appropriate for the dress of the day and and that was okay so we need to let children explore and experiment before we give our own expert advice but the same thing is true when we're providers working with a family a lot of times they can solve their own problems. so if we ask you know has this always been a problem if not you know in the past when it wasn't a problem what was different or what do you think might be the best way to approach this try to draw on the family's strengths use a lot of socratic questioning and avoid reassurances and diminishing responses like cheer up it's not that bad everything's going to be fine i know i think i said all three of those to my children at some point or another and that's you know invalidating so we do want to make sure that we validate encourage the caregivers to validate the child and or the child's behaviors and encourage um, team members to validate the parents behaviors and progress and we want to you know validate one another's as appropriate barriers to effective communication and these happen on every team ego Differences in degree of knowledge. You're going to have some techs. You're going to have some licensed clinicians. You're going to have the family members. And, you know, the family members may not have our level of schooling, formal education, but they are certainly the experts on their child. So they have a lot of knowledge about junior. Different purposes for communication can cause problems. If I'm communicating because I want you to do something and you're communicating because you want me to hear something those are different reasons We don't want to use jargon and technical language with families because that just confuses them. We don't want to just lecture at them um, We want to make sure there's not too much emotional distance, you know, we don't want to have that white coat thing going on We don't want to assume that we know what they're going to say or are feeling uh, we want to avoid feeling defensive letting your mind wander, or being in a hurry. Even if, you know, you've got a 45-minute session and then you have to be out the door to be your, to your next appointment, you know, sometimes you're just gonna have to slow down and that's the nature of working with people. So we do wanna be cognizant of these, especially when we're doing home visits and stuff with families. And it can be a little overwhelming sometimes if you've got multiple people involved. If it's just a caregiver and a child, it's a lot less overwhelming than when it's a caregiver and three children and then grandma all kind of feeding into the mix, communication styles um, and we do need to remember these. Some people are direct and to the point and need to get to the bottom line quickly. That tends to be me. you know I don't tend to go on a lot of circuitous routes when I'm talking about you know let's let's get it done indirect is the global thinker and tends to look at the big picture and may take more time to come to a decision so they may sit back and say okay ultimately we want junior to be able to feed himself so you know what are the seven ways we might be able to get there and yada 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 the dominating communicator is the one that's in charge unfortunately they may not always absorb input from one another because they come in, they've already got a plan, and they want to move forward. They're like, this is the way it needs to be. Well, not, not necessarily, because each child is an individual. The cooperative person is non-judgmental and can serve as a peacemaker and bring others to consensus, but may shy away from confrontation. So they want everybody to be happy. And even if something strikes them as like, no, that, this is probably a bad thing going on, they may avoid it. And parents are often often follow fall into that and then the nonverbal is the person who's on the team that doesn't actively engage in discussions but their silence may be the way they express themselves so watch for their body language if the parent is is silent generally team members aren't um you'll see more closed off body language so we do want to be aware of these things some parents are direct and they may come off as kind of dismissing or um cold, but that's just the way they communicate. So we do want to be sensitive to that. When we go into child care centers, and sometimes early intervention specialists do, uh, there are things, six ways we can interact. We can do a one-on-one pullout. And, you know, one of the little boys that was in my son's preschool class had a speech therapist that would come pull him out two days a week and work with him. And that's fine. You can also do a small group pullout. So if there's multiple kids that you're working with there, then great. Um, and you can just bring all of them out at the same time and work on something like you know, gross motor skills. You can do one-on-one in the classroom. So you're sitting there at the table with the other kids and your client in the classroom and helping him learn how to color in the lines or whatever he's doing. You can do a group activity such as practicing bouncing balls, talking about feelings or coloring. You can work with individualized um, services within routines. So like during the routine of nap time or going to lunch or recess, you know, this is where you step in. If you know that Johnny typically has difficulty staying on his mat at nap time, well, this is where you might come in and intervene in order to help him functionally integrate into this, into this routine where everybody's supposed to be napping. And sometimes it's pure consultation. You're not going to work with the child at all. You may go in and observe and and then talk to the teachers about this is how you might try to handle this. Or the same thing with the uh, the parents. But generally when you go into a classroom, teachers are going to want to have an idea about what can I do to facilitate this getting fixed. So systems are holistic. Um, The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You can take an OT and they can do all kinds of work and do great stuff. But what is that, how is that helping the whole child? Because we know that a disability or a delay in one area is going to impact the whole child. Well, working in one area and interventions in one area are also gonna impact the whole child. So if you have five different sources of input working to help the child, then we're just, like, exponentially helping the child develop. They're interdependent. Um, Individual components of a system can't be understood in isolation. You can't understand um, the impact of a child's ability to speak on his total development um, just looking at speech. You know, you want to look at, okay, there's speech, but if he can't speak or articulate his feelings then he can't socialize. If he can't socialize, then he may not want to get out and play, which may lead to lack of development of gross motor skills. So everything is interdependent. It's dynamic and changing, yet the body and the child and the family want to maintain homeostasis. Before Junior came along, the family operated a certain way. Now that Junior's here and with some developmental delays or disabilities, it's like, okay, you know, the homeostasis of the family has gotten jumbled up a little bit. So they want to get back to some sort of stable rhythm. They will tend to resist change, though. So if mom and dad have always worked outside the house and junior has these appointments now, it's going to be, you know, sometimes we call it culture shock. Because all of a sudden, the way they're used to doing things, they can't do, that, do it that way anymore. So then they've got to figure out how to make it work. And it's very, very stressful. And it's complex and nonlinear. Interactions and patterns among system components tend to go, you know, wibbly-wobbly. And just like development does. You know, sometimes kids will grow physically and they'll just shoot up. And then they won't grow physically for a while, but they'll grow emotionally. You know, they'll develop emotionally and cognitively. And you know, they kind of interact with another, but it's not progressive. It's not like they'll grow two inches, and then they're going to grow two inches, and then two inches again. You know, it's half an inch, six inches, and then three inches. So we don't want to set any certain specific timeline. And systems are the same. The child himself is a system, and the family themselves are a system. So, you know, If you've got five people in a family, mom may be right on board or dad may be right on board, but sibling, uh, not, not quite ready yet. So there may be some ebb and flow. And then, you know, mom may start losing motivation and getting frustrated and drifting off. So we need to bring her back in. So it's important to remember that, you know, there's going to be this ebb and flow that we need to pay attention to. First contacts, the family and service coordination, uh, Families, family and service coordination, coordinator meet to determine eligibility for early intervention services. And an assessment is done to obtain detailed information about what a child's unique strengths and needs are in order to think about intervention planning. So in this initial meeting, they kind of meet with the kid and the family and figure out, okay, who do we need on the team? This is not a full assessment yet. This is just figuring out You know, what players do we think we need? Then we start forming the transdisciplinary team. The foundation of a transdisciplinary team is collaboration. One assessment is performed by the team, and one integrated report is written by the team, which minimizes the inconvenience to families. So we don't have to have, you know, six assessments at six different offices. So we do this called through an arena-style assessment. So a single primary facilitator interacts with the child while parents and other team members observe and assist. So they may call the facilitator out and go, can you have Johnny do this so I can see yada yada. Um, But it's much less overwhelming to the child if he or she is just working with one person than if they have to work with six. In... These arena-style assessments, family involvement is the key because the family's going to be able to tell us that's that's normal how he's reacting or, no, he never does that at home. Uh, So we can have a better idea since it may not be, well, with all these people there, it's not going to be a natural setting even if it is occurring in their home. We want to adopt a strengths over deficits approach. An assessment should be conducted over time in natural environments. So, focus on the child's strengths. Yes, we're identifying the deficits, but we're using the strengths to compensate. We're identifying ways that we can mediate these deficits. Emphasis is placed on building and maintaining positive relationships with families. And the transdisciplinary assessment culminates in a single report, which incorporates information from the family's stated concerns, their priorities, and their resources So one family may have a wealth of resources while another family doesn't. And we need to make sure that the treatment plan we're using meets the child's needs but also doesn't overwhelm the family's resources. And again, it it focuses on their concerns and their priorities because that's how you're going to get buy-in. Observations of the child's behavior during the assessment will also be in there. The family statements about what the child is able to do because you're only going to get so much in a 45-minute, hour assessment. The results of the assessment instrument that is utilized, you know. so we're going to use something like the Bailey or something and and get an idea. We'll talk about that on Thursday. Um, But this will give us some objective information. And then we'll also have professional opinions and recommendations. So then the case coordinator is going to take all this stuff And compile it into one report and then we're going to work with the family to identify goals and objectives in these transdisciplinary team meetings which remember in the family is there it's not just the the professionals getting together the the caregiver or caregivers are there in addition to the team other team members we want to be straightforward and not evasive don't put the caregiver in the position of having to guess what you mean so if you go well You know, it seems like he may be lagging, but he'll probably catch up. As a caregiver, that makes me a little bit crazy. I'm like, okay, so is there a problem or is there not a problem? It's a yes or no sort of thing, not a kind of sort of maybe. Recognize the limitations of your own knowledge. You know, even as counselors and uh, occupational therapists and stuff, sometimes something's going to come up we just don't know the answer to. So we say, I don't know. And that's perfectly reasonable. Now, we can find out the answer, but it's okay not to know everything. Continue to avoid the use of professional jargon, not only for the family, but for the other team members. Not everybody can understand the jargon that medical providers and physical therapists and therapists, we use different languages. So try to get rid of the jargon. Allow sufficient time for caregivers to ask questions and discuss their concerns. Many early intervention meetings involve discussing and developing an action plan. So in this plan, we want to specify goals, strategies for achieving those goals, the roles of the particular team members, the time frame for achieving the goal, and a method for reviewing the process. So it's a treatment plan. I mean, that's what we call a treatment plan. Um, But we do want to make sure that the caregivers are involved in saying, yes, that's doable. I can do that in the next 30 days. Or... No, you know that i'm starting to feel overwhelmed, and that's okay and it's important to re- continually reiterate to the caregivers if you start feeling overwhelmed or frustrated or whatever, please tell me it it is totally okay, and you know I have the benefit of having been there and i can I can share stories with them and say you know there were times where I just didn't know if I was coming or going um, and it's okay to we want to make sure parents know it's okay to tell us, I'm running out of gas here. Effective teams have a clear mission, goals, and objectives, and that includes the family. You know, we want the family to know, okay, we're doing this because, and our goal here is this. Um, you don't want to have them, give them an intervention and say, why don't you do this this week with, with Johnny um, to improve his balance or whatever, and the parent's going, Why? You know, we want to help tie it to a functional outcome. He needs to improve his balance so eventually he can, you know, do whatever. Teams have strong supportive leadership. Everybody on the team is committed to the team. Ownership and responsibility is shared. Members are competent. Communication is effective. There's an atmosphere of trust and respect, and that includes, again, for the family. And I, I know I keep saying this, but I've worked on so many transdisciplinary teams where it felt like the parent was being shuttled off because they didn't have the same you know, college degrees or whatever. And the parents are really the experts in this. And we need to be self-aware. We need to be self-aware of when we're getting frustrated and when we might be hitting some blocks and of our own stuff that may come up. When there's a conflict, there are different types of conflict resolution styles. And we need to know this because we can intervene more effectively if we understand. So the competing person forces his or her own point of view without much consideration for the views of others. When tension escalates, this person pushes harder and harder. Now, if you're working with a parent who wants to get something done and they keep pushing and pushing and pushing, um, then they may be the competing person. There's a conflict there. If they keep repeating the same thing or keep, you know, going over the same thing, it tells us that they're not feeling heard for some reason. So there's some sort of a conflict or they don't want to follow through with this for some reason. And instead of saying, well, just go ahead and do it and, you know, we'll talk about it, ask them, you know, tell me tell me what it is that you have concerns about. So if they feel like they're being heard, They don't. they won't feel like they've got to push through. They won't feel like they're competing with you. They won't feel like they're trying to prove that they're as smart as you are, even though they may not have, you know high-level college degrees so be aware of competing because sometimes you'll see that in families who you know feel like they're out of their element the accommodating person also sees conflict as a win or lose situation but if instead of intending to win this person's resigned to losing so this is the parent that goes okay sure i'll do whatever you say you know and they may totally disagree with it, but they're not going to say anything. And these parents, we really want to empower to stand up and go, that is not going to work. You know, or I have concerns about this. Get it out in the open so we can talk about it because we can't resolve conflict unless we can talk about it. And conflict doesn't have to be an emotional thing, it can be a difference of opinion. The avoiding person tends to sweep conflict under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. So this is the parent who greets you with a smile every time and she really doesn't like you at all and really doesn't agree with what you're doing and never says anything. And this is the person who probably will drop out of treatment because she's swept so much under the rug and eventually it just kind of all piles up. You know, you can only put so much dirt under there before the lumps and bumps start to show. The compromising person prefers to meet the other party halfway. These are the best families to work with because they'll say what their issue is and we can work it out. And the collaborating style, which is very similar to compromising, looks for win-wins, you know, how can we make this work and get everybody's needs met. Disagreements are often viewed as opportunities to learn. So we want to clarify the conflict and seek to understand what's going on with the other person. And we can teach this to our parents, too, when they're working with their children or when they're working with other caregivers in the house, because sometimes you're going to have one caregiver that's totally on board and one caregiver that is not. And they're like, why are you doing that stupid stuff again? Well, because Johnny needs it. Um, So clarify the conflict and seek to understand. Develop awareness of personal motives of both people in the conflict. You know, try to become aware of your own motives and then also put yourself in their shoes. Find positive points of agreement. Generate alternative solutions. Build a reciprocal bank account. You know, I'll give a little bit here, but then eventually, you know, I'll ask for a little bit. So you're not always the one giving. Commit to, inact- commit to action and implement the plan and then monitor and evaluate. So like I said, this can happen between parents and um, professional team members, if you will, but this can also happen between members of the same family who are struggling to implement these interventions and to work with the child with the developmental delay. So we do want to help them figure out how do we resolve these conflicts. A lot of times we'll, we'll hear that one parent that's the primary caregiver, feels unsupported in this process. The other parent saying, oh, it's just a phase. He'll catch up. He'll, you know, he doesn't need all this intervention. You know, he's he's a kid. He's a strong kid. He'll, He'll grow up and be fine. So we need to help parents work through that. In team development, just like in group development, they go through forming, storming, norming, and performing. So in the forming phase, you know, nobody really knows what to expect. In the storming phase... Everybody's trying to define their roles in the group, and control issues are central. So parents may be trying to get control, and somebody else may be. This is where it's good to have a good, strong group leader. In norming, everybody knows what to expect from everybody else. You've got a well-oiled machine going on here. And in performing, um, the team is self-regulating and product- productive, and there's pride in membership. The team's collaborating, meeting its goals, and it's just chugging right along. So you know we see the same thing in groups. So goose teams. I told you we would talk about this real briefly, and I know we're running towards the edge of class. When you see geese flying along in a V formation, consider what science has discovered about why they fly that way. As each bird flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the bird immediately following them. By flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds at least 71% greater flying range than if each bird flew on its own. So people who share a common direction and sense of community can get where they're going more quickly and easily because they're traveling on the thrust of one another. So think about how much easier it is if the team is working together to get something done. We will stay in formation with those people who are headed the same way we are as well. So if we're all committed to this goal, we're, you know, Think about the V is pointing towards somewhere, then we're all headed towards the same direction and we're likely to stay in formation. When the lead goose gets tired, it rotates back and another goose flies point. We need to remember this when we're working in teams. It is sensible to take turns doing demanding jobs. You know, that lead person may not be able to step down, so to speak, but we do need to make sure that you know everybody is. Sharing the responsibility so one person doesn't feel totally overwhelmed and finally geese honk from behind to encourage those up front to keep up their speed and we can honk ourselves and You know when geese do it, it sounds kind of not nice But we can encourage each other and that's important in teams to give that honk every single day so real quickly cultural awareness We want to reflect on the following factors and how they've shaped our attitudes, beliefs, values, and behaviors. When we're working with zero to three, this is the time that the family's really involved with the young child because the child is so dependent. So what did our upbringing, upbringing, our education, our religious beliefs, our political beliefs, our culture, ethnicity, close relationships, and most powerful personal experiences, both the positive and the negative ones, How do all those things shape how we see family and what we see the role of caregivers and how we view children? You know, think about that a little bit because it differs for different people. Think about how the above factors have influenced your views about child development. You know, what's typical versus atypical? What's healthy versus dysfunctional? What are appropriate methods of disciplining children and appropriate teaching methods? What are appropriate boundaries between children and adults? What is an appropriate expression of emotion for a young child and for a parent? Um, What is the appropriate expression of physical affection? The importance or lack of importance of extended family and the importance of educational pursuits, creative pursuits, social networks and personal development. Because we do want to make sure that the family is staying healthy in addition to helping the child. So we do do need to remember, like I said before, in there are a lot of cultural differences. So we do want to look at the differences between individualistic and cult- collectivistic um, societies. So individualistic societies tend to be low context. Um, we're direct, explicit communication. We don't rely a lot on context to communicate our meeting. We say what we mean. Talk self assertion is achieved through talk, and talk is used to achieve comfort in a group. Individuality and uniqueness are asserted, and opinions are expressed to disagree, persuade, and avoid ambiguity and there's often uneven turn taking where some one person tends to be more dominant in a collectivistic society, they often use high context communication, so they 're not going to say as much, so you need to be, pay rea- a lot of attention to their nonverbals. Silence is valued and used communicatively, and comfort is often derived from silence. They tend to be more indirect and use subtle cues and hints in order to maintain harmony instead of coming out and saying, that's that's not going to work. They may hedge or turn their eyes away. And there's often balanced turn-taking, where each party takes short terms. So... When you're working with someone who is from a different culture than you in a team, we do need to be sensitive to how they communicate. So first encounters, such as the intake visit, need to emphasize the family. And interventions should address real-life, day-to-day needs. We should maximize interventions or learning opportunities, which, remember, are not the same as services for children. We're providing services more to the caregivers who are going to influence the children. Home visits need to be focused on emotional, material, and informational support. Consultation to child care needs to ensure that teachers embed interventions in those routines as well. And there are different types of conflict and different conflict management styles. And if we are more aware of those, then we can be sensitive to when they're starting to rear their heads on our team and we can intervene more effectively. Problems should be viewed as opportunities for team building and approached with the goal of arriving at a win-win solution. And remember, the overall mission or purpose of the team should always be considered when solving problems and making decisions. There are other videos on our YouTube channel. Go to um, allceus.com YouTube. You can learn more about adult learning theory to figure out how to more effectively communicate what we need parents to do um, to the parents. There are, I have a a whole series of videos on cultural considerations that talk about the high context and low context and all that. And communication skills review, which can be really helpful, especially for um, parents to help them figure out how to effectively communicate with their child if they're struggling with that. Okay, I went a little bit over. I apologize for that. Are there any questions? And I, I do agree, Katie. I mean, even when children get older. They learn so much more through routine-based and play-based interventions than um, learning rote skills. It's just so much more effective for them to live it than to regurgitate it. All right, everybody, have an amazing 4th of July, and I will see you on Thursday. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe either in your podcast player or on YouTube.